Jude's book is about fighting, contending, doing battle. When distraction arises, when false teachers emerge, when the truth of God is attacked, it is time to fight for the faith. Only believers who are spiritually in shape can answer the summons. At the beginning of this letter, Jude focuses on the believer's common salvation and then feels compelled to challenge them to contend for the faith. The danger is real. False teachers have crept into the church, turning God's grace into unbounded license to do as they please. Jude reminds such men of God's past dealings with unbelieving Israel, disobedient angels, and wicked Sodom and Gomorrah. In the face of such danger, Christians should not be caught off guard. The challenge is real, but so is a God who is able to keep them from stumbling. In our day and time, there is much distraction through the media and even through the so-called false church that's out there. And I'm not pointing fingers at any Granbury congregation, but there's a thing called the Jesus Seminar where so-called experts and people with more degrees than a thermometer behind their, lay, behind their name have gotten together and pooled their wisdom, that is, their, i.e., their pride, and come up with theories, new theories, and emphasizing old theories to discredit the reality of Jesus Christ, His resurrection, the inspiration of the Scriptures. But you know what? Nothing's new. This has been going on for centuries. And as Christians, we must contend for the faith. There is a real Jesus. There really is an empty tomb. The Bible has blessed man for centuries. And these Johnny-come-latelys are not going to have an impact. Amen? But in God's Word are keys to help us to resist opposition to the Christian faith. Verse 1. Jude's the fourth smallest book of the New Testament. Not much smaller than the others that are smaller. Not much larger than the others that are smaller than it. So, don't get excited when I say, I'm going to preach a whole book of the Bible. It's one of the smaller ones. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. I'm blessed by Jude's attitude here. He is one of the half-brothers of Jesus. Jesus had four brothers. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, who obviously wants to be known as Jude for obvious reasons. Jude, Judas, and Judah all mean the same thing. means praise. Praise. So when we talk about the Judas, we don't want to be like, we emphasize the latter part of his name, which means Iscariot. Judas Iscariot is the guy we don't want to name our kids after, right? Judas is a good name, but Judas Iscariot. It's interesting, I learned this this week. Iscariot means he shall be hired. Judas means praise. Iscariot means he shall be hired. Which obviously pointed prophetically to the fact that he um, was insincere in his praise. His praise and devotion to the Lord was for sale. And of course, he was hired to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Just a little bit of meaningful trivia there. What I like about Jude is he doesn't emphasize the fact that he's one of Jesus' brothers. James did. The Apostle John emphasizes that he was a favorite disciple, the one that Jesus loved. But here Jude just humbles himself and emphasizes the fact that he's a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. This blesses me. I don't know if you know much about sibling rivalry, but when one brother does really good, sometimes it's very hard 
for the other brothers to accept that, to praise that brother for his doing good because of the competitive nature that can happen between brothers. Well, Jude obviously had won that battle and submitted to the fact his brother was a son of God. He was not, and he was privileged to be one of his servants. What an example. What a blessing. To those, this is who it's addressed to, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. That word preserved is the Greek word tereo, which means to keep. We're kept in Jesus Christ. It literally means to keep from escaping. There's a promise in the Word of God that Jesus Christ has a keeping power to help us if we get off course to convict us of sin, to bring us to a place of repentance. His presence, His keeping power was present in this room today. If we will but respond to it, we need not stay down if we have fallen. Get back up and walk in His keeping power. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. The word there for multiply is plethuso, uh, plethuno, which is where we get the word plethora. means an overabundance. May God's mercy, mercy, Percy, niece, and love. Lord, don't let this be one of those days. Slow down. You can do this. Verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. I don't know about you, but I want to have the same form and practice of Christianity in my life that Jesus Christ initiated in the first century, don't you? I don't want some hand-me-down thing. You know, you ever play the game Telegraph where one person starts a rumor and by the time it gets to the tenth person, it's become something totally bizarre? I believe the Lord is restoring His church to where we will be just like the first church in form and practice Obviously, culturally different, but the basic message and, and sacraments of the church should be practiced today as it was in the original church. I do not say that arrogantly by saying that we are the restored church or we're the only church that has it going on. No, I just pray that God restores us and the rest of the body of Christ to the fullness of impact and ministry and truth and purity that the early church had. We need to contend earnestly for that because it was the faith once for all delivered to the saints. God is unchanging. Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. Praise the Lord. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He told Malachi, I believe, or Micah, I am God and I change not. Yet He's a God of change because He doesn't change, but He calls us to change. And so it's my desire that, that we as a church and as people and as individuals would walk in His unchanging ways as He changes us, making us more like Him. You know, if you're going one way and the way we're to go is this way, the answer isn't making this way the way. The answer is making this way change so you're going this way. Does that make sense? Not dumbing down Christianity, but smartening up. Christianity, not recreating God in our own image, that's idolatry, but being conformed to His image. He is God, we are not. That's a revelation that changed my life and continues to change it every day. The faith is the, is the heart of Christianity, starts with faith. 
The Bible says the just will live by faith. It says that we are called to walk by faith. We are called to be obedient to the faith. The lifestyle of a believer, the disciple's discipline, involves faith. Faith is belief in God as well as being a set of beliefs. And these things were delivered to the saints once for all. For all of us. For all time. God doesn't have a plan that's uniquely different in terms of His message and who He is to His people in, in the 21st century that's different than the 1st century. He's His people. Even more so because now we have the written Scriptures. So we are without excuse in our day and time. We're not called to change, alter, or ignore, but we are called to contend for that faith. Verse 4. Let us know that there are those in existence and will come and go throughout history to attempt to divert that contending. Verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. These certain men have crept in. Literally, it says they creep in stealthily, secretly. The word there for crept in is a word, perisduno, like parasites. These men would creep into the church to suck the life out of it, to turn the grace or to pervert the unmerited favor of God by turning it into license. Or lewdness. Literally to tempt people to change sides. The word lewdness means unbridled lust. To pervert God's grace to turn it into a license to sin. One of the errors that has been hitting the church in the last few centuries is the error of universalism. God loves everybody. And if everybody believes in God, that's all you got to worry about. Easy believism. Intellectual assent will get you into heaven. Some would go as far as to say, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. So it's already done. The whole world's going to heaven. They just don't know it. It's not what Jesus said. He said, if anyone wants to come to the Father or go to heaven, they got to come through me. They've got to believe in me. Not just believing that a God exists, but believing in Jesus Christ. Not just believing that Jesus Christ existed or exists, but believing in Him enough to take Him seriously. You know, the things you believe really has the impact on your life. You believe marijuana should be legalized? Guess what? You're going to be awful tempted with that stuff. You believe the laws of Texas are ridiculous? Man, I don't want to ride in your car. It'll have an impact on your life. If you believe in Jesus, Jesus Christ will have an impact in your life. It was He that gave His, His commission to go and make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything He commanded. There's about 70 things for us to discover in the Gospels that He commanded His people to walk in. And almost all of them have to do with the condition of our heart. So if you believe in Jesus... Some people believing in Jesus is like they believe in fidelity. I believe in fidelity, but they got 
half a dozen girlfriends on the side that their wife has to contend with. You believe there is a thing as fidelity, but you don't believe in it unless it, fidelity has an impact on your life. And we don't believe in Jesus unless Jesus has an impact on our life. You know why Jesus is not going to allow everybody into heaven? Because it would cease to be heaven if he allowed them there. One of the first things that atheists will bring up in their protesting against the belief in God, if there is such thing as a God, why are there so many evil people in the world? Why does God allow it? Because this ain't heaven. He turned earth over to us, and we have to live with the consequences. He said in the motion at the very beginning, what you sow, you will reap. Every seed will reproduce after its time. So in the world, there's all kinds of evil. There's evil going on right now, and God allows it. Now, His officers in the earth to resist evil is the police forces and the armed forces. Romans 13, you get into all that. They're serving God's purposes. But let me tell you, heaven will have no police. Because He won't allow any wicked people there. And basically, the truth of the gospel is this. Without Jesus, we are wicked. Or you may look good on a Sunday morning with your mask on, but behind this... Behind the cobwebs, behind the scenes, there's cobwebs and all kinds of other things going on. So it takes Jesus to cleanse our lives and make us like Him. So regardless of what Dr. Fuddy Daddy says, without Jesus Christ, there is no hope. That's the truth. That's what He said. If you don't believe that, you don't believe Jesus. Well, I believe Jesus don't, just don't believe what He said. Well, you're creating another Jesus, which the Bible warns us about. Peter also warned of these kind of people. He said, knowing this first, 2 Peter 3, 3, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. 2 Timothy 3 talks about men creeping into households and leading people astray. Just preaching what the book says, all right? Verse 5, that I want to remind you, Though once, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Israel was saved from Egypt. God went through a lot of demonstration of His power to get them free from Egypt. And yet He destroyed them in the wilderness because of their unbelief. God created the angels with majestic powers to serve His purposes. Went through a lot of detail to bring them into existence and to use them for His glory. And yet a certain portion of them He has reserved for judgment because they have rebelled. God went through a lot of trouble by using Abraham and Abraham's servants to deliver Sodom and Gomorrah and their surrounding cities, check it out in Genesis, from their enemies. Remember when Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek? He was paying back to the Lord a tenth of the spoils that he took in battle when God used him
to deliver Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities from their enemies. And yet later, God destroyed them. God goes through a lot of demonstration to show His love to people. And yet some people are going to be destroyed. How many want to be in the first group of people? Amen. Thank you, Lord. Jude calls these people, these false teachers, dreamers. They just, you know, they have a fantasy God. They're not serving the real Lord. And they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they speak evil of dignitaries. And it says, even Michael the archangel, the highest of the angels, didn't do this when he dealt with the devil. Verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation. But he said... The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally. Like brute beasts and these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them. Now, what he's sharing there in verse 9 is something that is Jewish tradition. It's not in the Old Testament. But according to Jewish tradition, the Bible says that when Moses died, God buried him. But according to Jewish tradition, in the burying of Moses, God sent the... Archangel Michael to do the job. And Satan tried to hinder him. And to break through, Michael appealed to a higher authority and said, The Lord rebuke you. What did Satan want to do with Moses' body? I don't know. Maybe turn him into a god. To distract people from the true Jesus. Now, my Catholic brothers and sisters, please don't be offended about what I'm about to say, but I have to say it because it's the truth. I believe Pope John Paul II was a wonderful man. Wonderful man. And I believe he knew Jesus. But I believe from where he is right now, he, is, he would be greatly grieved if he knew that people were uh, politicking to make a God out of him. Distracting people from Jesus. That wasn't what he was about. He was about pointing to Jesus. And that Jesus still exists whether we vote on Him or not. He's still there. Amen. All right. Moving right along. Verse 11 says, Woe to these false teachers, for they have gone in the way of Cain and have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, these stories are in the first five books of the Bible. Cain's story is in Genesis. These people have gone in the way of Cain. What did Cain do? He killed his brother. But the bottom line, Cain refused to repent. Remember, they both offered an offering to the Lord, and God accepted Abel's offering, but He did not accept Cain's offering. And Cain was grieved. The Lord came to Cain and spoke to him. I mean... Talk about something to be excited about. I mean, I'd be excited if I heard the audible voice of God, wouldn't you? And Cain still didn't repent. The Lord said, Cain, if your offering wasn't accepted, it's because sin lies at the door of your heart and desires to have you, and you should rule over it. Cain blew that word off. He killed his brother, and he still didn't repent. And then God confronted him, and he still didn't repent. In fact, he shunned all responsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? 
And so God cursed him and made him a vagabond and a fugitive for the rest of his life. And the scriptures do not record the fact that he ever repented. Some people are just relentless rebels. The error of Balaam blows my mind. This story takes up several chapters in the book of Numbers. Balaam was a prophet, not a Jewish prophet, but he was an Old Testament prophet that was hired by Balak, king of one of Israel's enemies, to prophesy gloom and doom. Balaam had a reputation for whatever he said came to pass. So Balak thought, hey, if whatever this guy says come to pass, if, I can, if he's got that kind of power, as though he was speaking something into existence, he said, if he has that kind of power, if I can hire him to speak gloom and doom on God's people then gloom and doom will come. I mean, look at his track record. So Balak hired Balaam, and on his way to close this deal and begin these prophecies, Balaam had an encounter with God where God spoke to him through his donkey. Balaam still went to do it anyway. And when it came time for him to prophesy, he couldn't prophesy gloom and doom. He had to say what the Lord said. And he pronounced blessings on them. Even prophesied some stuff that Jesus fulfilled. That happened. He still didn't repent. He tried it again. I think he prophesied three or four. Was it three times? Three different times he attempted to do it. And he didn't. He prophesied good things. He still didn't repent. Needless to say, Balak was ticked off. <laughs> now I'm in worse shape than before. The people I wanted to bring down are definitely going to be blessed now. That story is related in several places in the Old Testament. It's an amazing story. And the Scriptures allude to this fact. And you see it happening in the Scriptures immediately following. Secretly, Balaam said to Balak, All right, I can't, I can't prophesy gloom and doom on you. But if you want to bring these people down, just send in your wild women. And... And the men will fall. And then God will judge them. And it happened. A wicked man intent on bringing hurt to God's people, even though supernaturally he saw God's hand in his life. He was still intent to do it. Refusing to repent. And then the story of Korah is another amazing story. This guy was honored. He was, he was a Levite. I mean, all these guys were honored. Cain was honored. When he was born, his mother said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. She thought he was going to be the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. It said a seed of woman would bring them victory. Balaam was blessed by God to be a, a prophet that prophesied true things. Korah was blessed by God. He was a Levite called to serve alongside the priests. But Korah stirred up a little following. And said, Moses isn't the only person that can hear from God around here. Who does he think he is? Moses warned him. Before the story was over, Korah and his followers were swallowed up by the ground right there in the wilderness. On all three occasions, these people refused to repent, although God gave them an opportunity. So Jude's ticked off with these people. 
He's drawing some illustrations that are not complimentary. Can you see that? Verse 12, he goes on to say, These are spots in your love feasts. The word there for spots means hidden reefs. These people are dangerous in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars. The word there for star is aster. You get the word asteroid. It's like they're meteors that just float across the sky here tonight and gone tomorrow night. For whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever? Verse 14, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Literally, he says, with millions of his saints. To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So he quotes from the Apocrypha, books written before Christ that Jews have not accepted as being inspired. He quotes from them anyway to get his point across. Now, I know Paul in preaching quoted pagan poetry to get his point across. I've read certain portions of the Apocrypha and some of them definitely point to Jesus, but others are way out to lunch. So there's a mixture in the, in the Apocrypha. So it's obvious Jude believes this, this particular part of the Apocrypha, he quotes, is fine to quote. I don't know. Uh, I certainly don't have that kind of boldness. But I believe that as the Bible says, the Scriptures are inspired by God. And God inspired Jude to relay this prophecy that God is coming with ten thousands of His holy ones, angels and people, to bring judgment on the earth. And these who've led people astray, be it Muhammad or Buddha or whoever it would be, Reverend Fuddy Duddy, are going to be judged by God. So the story is not over. Meanwhile, we're to contend for the faith, not to take matters into our own hand and to hang these people out to dry. Verse 16, he says, These are grumblers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. So in my contending for the faith, I've got to deal, for these, deal with these things in my own life. I've got to be willing to repent when I see my error. Grumbling. Complaining. Not controlling my own lust, but turning them loose. Walking after them. And gaining advantage over people by flattering them. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. There are people like this in our day and time. And Jesus prophesied that in the kingdom... The, enemy would, the kingdom was like a man who sowed wheat in a field and at night an enemy came and sowed tares. And his servants said, well, should we uproot the tares? And he says, no. Wait till harvest time. Because if you uproot the tares now, you uproot good wheat with it. 
And so I, I personally believe in every cult, in every false camp, is, are people that are good people that God has purposed to bring into His kingdom. And um, in dealing with divisive persons, you have to let God do it many times. And Jesus said on Judgment Day, the angels are actually the one that remove these guys. Keep them from leading people astray. It is never healthy for a local church to go on a witch hunt. Okay, who did Satan send in this church? I have discernment. No, you have suspicion. fact that the communist government would send spies into church meetings to find out who the Christians were, where they lived, what their address and information was so that they could be persecuted. And the leaders of the church in Romania at that time had to make a decision. Are we going to love these people or are we going to become suspicious of them? Because if we become suspicious of them, we'll become suspicious of one another. Before long, we'll destroy ourselves by wondering who's, who's the informer in our midst. So a friend of mine was there under this time and he saw pastors get up and say, we know some informers are here, but we don't care who you are. We want you to know Jesus loves you. He just loved everybody. Obviously, if a person becomes known to be divisive, then you would confront them and deal with that in a biblical manner. The Scripture gives protocol for that. But this is not a call for us to become suspicious and begin to point fingers. It's just if you see this, in your own life, repent and contend for the faith. And if you see others being led astray, contend for the faith and attempt to lead them to a place of repentance, returning back to the Lord. Verse 17. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they told you that there would be mockers in the last time, who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Or he's already told us to contend for the faith. Now he tells us to build ourselves up on the faith. I don't want just to see the church be purified and, and walking in the faith that was originally delivered to it, but I want to build upon that. I believe the glory of the latter house is going to be greater than the glory of the former house. I believe the last day's church will be stronger, more powerful than the first day's church. So we want to build ourselves up on that most holy faith. And here's how. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keeping ourselves in the love of God. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some, have compassion, making a distinction. So here's how to do it. Here's how to build ourselves up on our most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit, keep ourselves in the love of God, and look for the mercy. Keep an eternal perspective in life, looking for opportunities to show mercy. Praying in the Spirit, keeping ourselves in the love of God, looking for mercy. If you ever have to make a judgment call in disciplining someone, or in, in any manner in relationships, reconciling with people, always, if, you, if you have to make a judgment call, err on the side of mercy. Let mercy be the predominant force in our dealings with people. Verse 22 says, On some, 
What is this sum? This is some people were to have compassion, making a distinction or making a difference. Now, these men who would lead the church astray, obviously, were not to have any, any uh, form or fashion of following them. But there are some people in error of their ways, maybe they're a grumbler or they're a complainer, or they're wrestling with their own lust, or they, they, they manipulate people with their words, were to make a difference with them by having compassion with them. Because they're just somebody who could, be, who could go the wrong way, but we want to restore them to the right way. Verse 23, But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. The church is a place for restoration. Amen? We are anointed to set captives free, to bring deliverance to the captives, the opening of eyes to the blind, the strengthening of the lame, the healing of the broken. Amen? We are to do that as a church. And some people have gotten into sin that's going to burn them up. It's going to take them to hell fire. And we are to pull them out of the fire hating even the garments defiled by the flesh, but to save them with godly fear. The word there for fire is a Greek word, poor. And fire that is poor is fire that's heading someone to hell. Who knows that sin will burn you up. Sin will even burn you up here on earth. Destruction in life. Relationships are destroyed by sin. Wars are caused by sin. Riots are caused by sin. Disorder of all kinds is caused by sin. Something about fire and sin go hand in hand. And yet, fire and purification goes hand in hand. May the poor of our sin make us pure in Christ because we've learned our lesson through reaping what we sowed and never sow those seeds again. Lord, I pray that you would help us to build ourselves up on our most holy faith through prayer, prayer in the Spirit, through staying in your love, walking in your mercy, and through having compassion on those that are not walking in your love, to saving others with fear, Lord, all of you, Lord, helping pull people out of the fire. Lord, use us as a rescue shop just outside the gates of hell to pull people from the fire. In Jesus' name, amen. Jude ends this book with this powerful prayer. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty and dominion both now and forever. Amen. You say amen. Let's just bow our heads right now and ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts as we prepare to take communion, to celebrate the mercy and love of God that is symbolized through the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, just search our hearts right now. Lord, is there anything that grieves you in my life, in my mind, in my lifestyle, in my heart, in my relationships. Show me, Lord, so that I can ask for forgiveness, so that I can prepare my heart 
Examine me, O God, so that I can partake of these elements in the rightful manner.
Father, and the only place that we're satisfied, Father, is in your presence. And God, we just ask, God, that you just come right now, penetrate every part of this place, God. Father, let us know, Father, that we have met 